This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, my name is Charles Kindrigan. I'm a professor of family law here at Suffolk University Law School. And I'm here to talk today about the Alimony Reform Act of 2011 in Massachusetts. This is a rather remarkable change in the law that affects the rights and liabilities of people who are involved in divorce or were involved in divorce and can have orders of support issued by the court. This, of course, does not apply in the cases where the parties agree upon the divorce to have a contract by which one is agreed to support the other, but does deal only with those cases where the court has ordered support of a spouse. Now, it's true that in Massachusetts we have had alimony ever since the Massachusetts Constitution was written by John Adams back in the 1780s, since the Constitution expressly provides for marriage, divorce, and alimony, and that's in the Massachusetts Constitution. The very first legislature in this state, after the enactment of the Constitution, passed an alimony law, and we have had one ever since. The most recent law was passed in 1974, and it simply provided that upon a divorce or any time thereafter, the court can award alimony. But of course, that's not very specific, is it? And as a result, we now have a law which is being signed by Governor Patrick, and it will then become the law on March the 1st of 2012. This new law does not change the basic purpose of alimony, which is grounded in the need of one spouse for support and the ability of the other spouse to pay such support. But what it does is to make rather extensive modifications in the law in very specific ways. In large part, this new law, while it doesn't change except for what we call reimbursement alimony, I'll talk briefly about that in a minute, with that exception, it does not change the basic principle of alimony, that it's based upon the need of a divorcing spouse or divorced spouse, and that the other spouse has the ability to pay. As I mentioned, the law was very vague up until the present time, and what this produced was some inconsistencies from county to county and judge to judge, and a recognition that lifetime alimony is in many cases not appropriate. So that the various bar associations in this state, including the Women's Bar, the Massachusetts Bar, the Boston Bar, the Gay and Lesbian Bar, and others, as well as members of the legislature, were finally convinced that some change was needed. And finally, both the House and the Senate, and this is remarkable, passed the bill unanimously. And so this change is one which is, except for very few critics, generally been received very happily by the people of Massachusetts. The first thing I think I should mention is that this is based in part upon the relevance of a decision by an alimony obligor to retire. There was a recent decision involving a man named Pierce who retired. He had been a judge, a federal magistrate, and a very successful lawyer. But upon reaching age 65, he decided to retire and sought a modification of his alimony obligation. 
It was not eliminated, but it was reduced. And that question now in the new law is, what is the point where a person would normally be eligible to retire and have his alimony either reduced or eliminated based upon this retirement? Under the new law, the critical date is the person's ability to receive full Social Security benefits. Social Security laws changed over the years. For people who were born before 1942, it's age 65, and that's true up until 1942. But as to those who were born 1943 to 1959, then it's age 66. And for those born after 1960, it's age 67. And I think it's very likely that in the future, we're going to have subsequent modifications of the Social Security law in regard to full eligibility. You notice I use the term full eligibility. This means that it does not apply in the case of a person who decides to take early retirement, which is currently age 62, and receive partial Social Security benefits. They are not under this law fully eligible to seek modification based upon that early decision to retire. There are a number of different kinds of alimony that are explained in this bill. One of them is general term alimony, which of course is one which has historically been present, and that is that a person who has been married for some substantial period of time can be required to pay alimony to his or her spouse. Under the current law as modified, effective March 1st, 2012, the critical date is the length of the marriage as 5 years, 10 years, 15 or 20 years and less, which calculates the continuing alimony obligation based on the number of months which the marriage did last. The general term alimony can certainly be indefinite, as was historically in the past, but that is true for marriages which have lasted 20 years or longer. Again, subject to the right of an alimony obligor to seek modification upon his or her retirement based upon the Social Security law, as I previously explained. The prior rule that a alimony can be modified on a material change of circumstance, as shown in evidence to the court, still is existent and is the rule under the new law as well. Now, Section 50 of the new law recognizes something called rehabilitative alimony, and we've had some decisions in the past suggesting that rehabilitative alimony is appropriate. This is a kind of alimony which is based upon the idea that one spouse may need some time to be rehabilitated in order to become self-supporting. That is, that a person might need some additional education when leaving a marriage or some other education or type of training to make themselves now self-supporting in the future. A new feature of this statute is that this rehabilitative alimony is that except in compelling circumstances, it is not to extend for more than five years. So this really is a form of rehabilitation. The law provides for something called reimbursement alimony. In my opinion, this is not true alimony because unlike the other forms, it's not based as such on support. It has previously been recognized in a few decisions in this case, but it's really a form of restitution. And it would apply, I think, 
basically in cases of relatively young people married for only a short duration, during which one of them contributes to the ability of the other to become a good income producer. An example might be a man going to medical school, his wife works, and then she pays or helps to pay his tuition to medical school. And then the marriage ends, and one of the persons leaves with the benefit of this education, while the other has really nothing. They've suffered a detriment, perhaps postponing their own education in order to support the other. This is a case really of restitution, and I suspect it's going to be applied mostly in cases of very young and short-term marriages where one party doesn't really have any need, and the other party may not even have the ability yet to provide much in the way of support but an order can be entered even for lump sum alimony or periodic alimony to help reimburse the other party for their contributions. And then, of course, we can also have transitional alimony. That is a form of alimony that's intended to help a person transition out of marriage. This might be, for example, to help them pay some rent when they're moving from a home to an apartment or maybe transportation or some other transitional form of support. This is limited to, at most, three years. One of the questions that, of course, is bound to be asked is, what are the standards to be used in judging alimony, particularly term alimony? And certainly the statute sets forth grounds that are very familiar to lawyers and judges because they have been in existence under Section 34 after 1974, applied to both alimony and property division, with one exception, and the exception is that the phrase conduct of the parties during the marriage has been removed from the alimony statute. It still applies in the case of property division. Now, one of the questions has often been asked in the past is whether or not when an alimony obligor remarries and he marries a person whose income improves his standard in life, can that be taken into account in modifying or awarding alimony to the former spouse? And the answer to that question is no. The fact that another person now is in this picture and providing some assets or income is not a factor that would require, for example, an increase in the support of the prior spouse. It also excludes income from a second job or overtime work, which began after the initial order of alimony, and the party works for more than the equivalent of a full-time position. So this is a good example of a change in the law which I think is going to be helpful. In addition, this law provides that alimony previously awarded can be given consideration in modification when the effect is to award alimony beyond the amount provided now in the statute. And there are various formula which are used and employed to be able to do this. And this is going to extend over several years after March 1st, 2000. And 12. So we have to wait and see. And in this short time, I really can't go into those details. But certainly a person who is obligated to pay alimony or entitled to receive alimony might want to consult with their lawyer, their prior lawyer, or the lawyer who represented them in the divorce or some other lawyer in order to see how the law, if at all, does affect their situation. 
This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.